Well, good morning, saints. Have you ever wondered what was going through the mind of the Old Testament prophets, the writers, the authors of our Hebrew scriptures? They were, would spend a lot of time talking about the Israelites, talking to them, calling them on the carpet, calling them to repentance, and so on and so forth. But as you know, interspersed through all of that, they spoke of one who would come, who would make all things right. And how they spoke about him was unlike anyone else. They had ever referenced a well-known passage, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given. What shall we call this one? Let's call him Mighty God. I assure you, that was not a common Jewish name for their children. But it was what was given to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the one who was coming. Or the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who spoke of one who would make us righteous. What was his name? We'll call him the Lord our righteousness. Stop for a moment. These statements that are made by these godly, mature Jewish prophets are astounding. Fast forward to the end of your Old Testament. Malachi Behold, I send my messenger, he will come before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. He's coming. Isn't that interesting? The Lord says that he is coming. The Lord says the Lord is coming. Indeed, after 400 years of silence, prophetic silence, Matthew jumps on the scene. No introduction. Remember, he doesn't doesn't introduce himself. It's been a while, guys. Want to restart this conversation. He just lays it on the table. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And what does he say about this baby that bursts onto the scene in Bethlehem? Quoting Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. That's another name. Emmanuel. Why are we calling him Emmanuel? Because Emmanuel means God with us. In the most glorious, literal sense, God is among us. 
We have just examined the profound prayer that is recorded for us in Colossians. It is truly a model for us. He speaks of our inheritance. He tells us that we were rescued and redeemed. We discuss these three colossal truths of the gospel. Our goal is to be well positioned by growing in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Upon a firm foundation, we progress towards maturity in Christ. And we serve and walk with the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the power and the vitality of the truth of the gospel is all wrapped into or wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is why Paul told the Corinthians, he said, I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Paul told the Corinthians as well that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we of all people are to be most pitied. We have no hope. We are still in our sins. And we are suffering needlessly for this gospel. But now let's take this a step further. If it is not Christ who is up there on the cross... We've gained nothing. If Jesus is not who he said he is, we are truly, in every sense, lost at sea. If Jesus is not who God says he is, in his word, we are lost at sea. But this is where our soaring gospel theology takes flight. Jesus is preeminent. He surpasses all others. He has no equal. He has no rival. Jesus is Lord. What they undoubtedly scratch their head at at times, the Old Testament prophets, is that which the angels also long to fully grasp and understand. The person And the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We cannot separate the person and the work of Christ. Because Christ could not do his work if he isn't who he says he is. So, let's read our sermon text this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse... 15. Got it? All right. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, 
And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a lot. We won't get through it all today. Now, theologians call this Christology, the study of Christ. You might know that theology is the study of God. Charles Spurgeon said that theology is the queen of all sciences. The study, the contemplation of, the consideration of, the investigation into the glorious person of Christ and his marvelous ministry is without a doubt the loftiest, the sweetest, and the most satisfying pursuit that any man, woman, or child could ever undertake. When you are weighed down, when your thoughts are racing, a sincere contemplation of Christ will settle your mind and your anxious thoughts. I've been there. When you are overwhelmed and when you are confused with life's happenings, it will be a balm and it will be a comfort for your soul. When you are tempted beyond it feels your ability to stand, it will greatly encourage you and strengthen you as you resolve to put sin to death in your own life. When grief comes crashing in, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. There is no more sure foundation upon which to build our lives, which are in the end a mere mist that will eventually evaporate as it does when the sun rises. For developing integrity and perseverance and wisdom and all things good and beneficial As Mindy prayed earlier, set your mind on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Precisely what Paul tells us to do later in this letter, chapter 3. As we see the threefold prayer of Paul develop in this letter, position, progress, power. We embark this morning upon a majestic portion of scripture that so powerfully teaches us the truth about Christ. We are positioning ourselves to stand upon the firm foundation of God's truth, the matchless name of Jesus. We simply cannot and will not mature in Christ. 
if we don't grasp more and more the essential truths about him. Indeed, there are many secondary and tertiary doctrinal matters that Bible-believing true Christians disagree on. This is not one of them. This is the core and the heart of the gospel in the most emphatic manner and with supreme clarity and great precision, Scripture tells us who Christ is. He is not merely a good man. He is not merely a good teacher, perhaps a cut above the rest. He is God. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is not the Father. He is not the Holy Spirit. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity born in such humble means in Bethlehem. It is for good reason that Paul would tell Timothy, the young pastor, great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh. It is for this reason that Luke tells us that God purchased us with his own blood. Let us learn and let us settle our minds on this vast subject. You will never exhaust its truths. But it will provide a sure foundation, a solid position for your Christian walk. As we said, later in Colossians, Paul will tell us to set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And from that moment on, he will give us practical teaching on how to live as Christians. That's progress. That is movement towards maturity. But he does not do that before he lays a solid foundation of doctrine, of truth about Christ. In our passage today, Paul will tell us beyond doubt that Jesus Christ is not just another man. He does so by showing us and teaching us who Jesus is in relation to a number of other people or things, beginning with God himself. This is who Christ is in relation to God. This is who Christ is in relation to creation. Now, not long ago, we set aside an entire month to reflect upon the advent of Christ. Wonder of wonders, God took on human flesh. We asserted that this was necessary for our Savior to bypass the sinful line of Adam by being born of a virgin. Now let's get into what Paul has to say about Christ to the Colossians. It is so profound 
And it is somewhat difficult to initially perceive what he's actually saying. Because we don't use this type of language in our day-to-day life. The first thing that, that Paul says about Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now that is saturated with powerful truth, but it's not immediately clear, perhaps, what he's saying. So first I'll say this. Search your Bible and see if anything remotely close to this is said of anyone else. Take your top five, the big guns in the Bible, and ask yourself, do they say this about them? And the answer, spoiler, is no. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He took our form ultimately to die for us, but he's not like you and me. In fact, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the father. Said no Old Testament prophet ever. When we see God's moral attributes... Oh, I'm sorry, we see God's moral attributes in Jesus. We see God's heart in Jesus, unlike we do in anyone else. We see him moved in compassion to those who are suffering. We see him confronting injustice and sin. We see him grieve. But all of this is a mere outflow Of what Paul just said. Think of it this way. We know in Genesis that the Bible says that we are made in the image of God. We bear his resemblance in many ways. Obviously not always. All in always. But that's not what Paul says here. We are made in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. That's who he is. The idea is of a stamp or an exact replica of the same essence. As Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, that Christ being Equal with God. He did not grasp onto that equality, but he humbled himself. He became one of us. He submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. I cannot say this enough. You will never hear this said of an Old Testament prophet or judge. Elijah, Deborah, David, it will not, they will not say that about them. Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he is God. He is the one and only person who could ever say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at the first few verses in... 
Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Profound statements. I just want to say this. What was very helpful to me when I was exploding in my own faith, growing when I, was, when I went to college, when you think of who Christ is, showing that Christ is divine, here's all you need to know. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 1. You will note that we're touching on each of them this morning. John, Colossians, Hebrews, Revelation. Conveniently and strategically placed at the very beginning of those letters or books. Because you have to know who Christ is to understand the rest. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That shorthand for saying, hey, we have an Old Testament. But, contrast, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's important. Remember, we talked about our inheritance, intrinsically linked to him. Through whom also he created the world. Verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And upholds all things. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. All of these passages, and we'll develop this in the next week or two, all of these passages are saying the same thing and in different ways. Jesus is himself God. He is the exact representation of God, the exact imprint of his nature, never said of us. You could think of it in this way, a photograph, that's the best I think the best way we have to look at this is when you see a picture of someone, you say, oh, that's, that's a, the exact representation of someone else. Now to our next statement about Jesus. Again, a statement that is not said of anyone else. He is the firstborn of all creation. Or the firstborn over creation or all creatures. Now, at first glance, this is a little tricky. You might look at that and you say, oh, so he's the first of God's creation. He's the first one that was made. Well, we know that's not true because of the Old Testament. Lots of people were born in the Old Testament. He wasn't the first. And nor is he merely the most important of that creation. This is a clear designation of his rulership and of his preeminence. He inherits all things because he is before all things and is over all things. 
Think of it in terms of the old Jewish birthright. The firstborn son is the inheritor. He gets it all. Jesus was not the first that was born in creation. He holds that position of the firstborn, the one who inherits it all. And this is not just a random gift that is given him. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89. This messianic passage. Verse 27. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This title that is given him, this position, is that of the firstborn. Now to ensure that there is no misunderstanding, look at what follows. We're back in Colossians. Look at what follows next. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. He makes it very, very clear what he just said when he said he is the firstborn of all creation. Because he goes on to say that actually, speaking of creation, he made it all. He is the creator. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and you're reading this, there is no mistaking what he is saying, what he is asserting. Because in the Old Testament, it is beyond clear that there is one true and living God, and He is the creator of everything. Which is why we bow the knee to Him. Because He made it all. I love how Vinny talked about the expanse of the universe, and I wanted to Speak to that too, actually. is just so much to speak to. When you think of the expanse of creation, the depth of the ocean, that frankly we know very little about. The universe. Christ made it all. Christ upholds it. What Paul is saying unmistakably is that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. After the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of written through the same lens, through the same perspective, helpful especially for Jews to understand, okay, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Along comes John. John is the apostle who writes his gospel account really for us non-Jews to really grasp the message of Jesus, who he is and what he offers. But notice how he begins, verse 1. In the beginning... 
Where have we heard that phrase before? Genesis Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John, again, unmistakably takes us back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, which is a designation for Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I go home and try to figure that one out. And to be clear, he says, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we begin this great subject of Christ. He is the heart of the gospel. He is the foundation of the gospel. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is no gospel. But if Jesus is not who he says he is, it is equally true that there is no gospel. But praise God, that is not true. He is who he says he is. I present to you the deity of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ which we will continue in the next week or so in this passage. You'll see I'm wearing my Mission Aviation Fellowship shirt this morning. Tomorrow, Joyce Lynn's entire family, her parents, siblings, their family, will for the first time travel to Papua to visit her gravesite. Almost three years later. So first I'd like to ask you to pray for them for obvious reasons. But I asked if I could give them something, which I'll give to them today, a little something for them to lay on her gravesite from me and really from all of us. It's just a letter. And in that letter, I reference the fact that we're actually right now preaching through a passage that is all about Christ. How he is our rock. And because of him, we have confidence that her life and her loss was not in vain. And we have confidence that she is right now filled with unspeakable joy in the presence of her Savior. We mourn. We grieve, and particularly those of us who knew her well, we miss her. Oh, but the confidence that she is with Christ, absent from the body, but present with Christ, is because of the person and the work of Christ. So I commend to you earnestly this beautiful Study, let it sink in, know it, reflect upon it, meditate upon it. Do you join me for a word of prayer? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we once again come before you and we thank you. We thank you for who you are. 
We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that Christ is who he says he is, that he is risen from the dead. We thank you for the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We pray if there is but one today who does not know you personally, that they would turn to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him, receive him as Savior and Lord. And Lord, as we give special attention to the study of Christ, may it enrich us and help us in every way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.